Oh my. I got it. Hold on. Now, oh, okay, good. Job chapter 38. Before we get started tonight, let's pray and ask the Lord to uh, do a good work tonight in our hearts. Father, we, we're here to hear from you. Lord, we are excited whenever we open up this book. The words come to life, Lord. You speak through these pages. You speak today, Lord, through your word. And your spirit, Lord, is our teacher. And, and whenever we come, Lord, and interface with Scripture, with an open heart, with an eager mind, with a ready spirit, Lord, you meet us here. You meet us here over these pages, and you speak to us, and you direct us and guide us. Lord, tonight I pray that you would uh, hammer home the lessons we've been learning. Lord, that we can take the important subject of this book, the sovereignty of God, and that we can accept it and embrace it. And even praise you, Lord, for who you are and what you do. Lord, we thank you for tonight, and we ask that you work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Comedian Woody Allen was once asked to explain God. This is how he replied. I can't explain God to you. I don't even know how my toaster works. This is the humility that Job obtains at the end of tonight's chapters. Yet for the bulk of the book, chapters 3 up through 37, Job had the opposite attitude. Not only did he think he knew how his toaster worked, he thought he knew how to run the universe. His arrogance ran rampant. In justifying himself, he had accused God. Job had questioned and criticized and even taunted the Almighty. You see, Job got stuck. He got stuck asking why. You know, it's a terrible thing to get stuck on why. And why, quite frankly, is an easy place to get stuck. Focus on what God does, and we learn lessons. We move forward. Zero in on who? On God's goodness and God's righteousness, and we look up. But linger on why, and you get stuck. God may not disclose His purpose. Reasons are often hidden from view. God doesn't owe us an explanation. Why is like quicksand. And the more you struggle with why, the deeper you sink. Question God and suddenly disrespect and pride and irreverence and bitterness begins to grow in your heart. Job demanded insider information. He wanted to know why all these things had happened to him. He acts like God is bound by the Freedom of Information Act. By the way, he's not. Job loses the one ideal he couldn't afford to lose. He loses his fear of God. In chapter 38, God does appear to Job, but not to answer his questions as Job had demanded. No, God takes a most unusual approach. He comes to God asking questions, not answering them. And for these last five chapters, God asks Job a series of questions that he can't possibly answer. In fact, he asks Job a total of 70 unanswerable questions. The Almighty is about to show Job 
that he doesn't know as much as he thinks he does. Job is about to get whittled down to size and put back in his place. Chapter 38 begins, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. You remember in the previous chapter, Elihu had described a storm that was brewing off in the distance. And as he addressed Job, this storm, these storm clouds seem to grow closer and closer. The wind is now picking up. The storm is now on top of Job. And God speaks to him from the whirlwind. And God said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That's a fancy way of saying, Who's this guy I've been listening to for 28 chapters who doesn't know what he's talking about? He says, now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. You see, Job has spent the entire book so far calling into question God's reasons and God's judgments. Now it's God's turn to ask Job a few questions. Verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. God's asking, Job, were you on the shovel when I poured the footings for the universe? Or were you on the bucket, Job? I've forgotten. I don't remember. Obviously, Job wasn't around at the dawning of creation. And you know what? Neither were we. And yet it is amazing how scientists today will speak so authoritatively and so dogmatically on the origins of the universe when they weren't even there. How arrogant. One day, God will say to Stephen Hawking's and Richard Dawkins, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Carl Sagan got the question in 1996 when he died and met his maker. In the second grade, we learned that real science is founded on two principles. Observation and verification. It stands to reason that since God was the only observer at the time of creation, He's the only person qualified to speak dogmatically about what actually happened and when. Well, God continues, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Who put the plumb line on the universe, Job? Here God even gets sarcastic. He mocks Job. Surely you know. Job, you've got answers for everything else. Tell me, who plumbed the universe? Who made sure it was level? Of course, Job had no way to calculate the measurements of the universe. He had no way to figure the Earth's equator. It's 24,901.55 miles. The distance of the Earth's meridian is 24,859.82 miles. Job had no way of calculating, making those calculations like we do today. And yet, God asked Job 70 questions. And I want you to understand that this question, the measurements of the, un- of the, of the earth, this is one of only two or three of these 70 questions that we can answer. Amazingly, after 3,500 years to conduct research and to do our homework, Man is capable of answering just a few more questions than Job could 3,500 years ago. Needless to say, Job is not doing very well on God's pop quiz, and probably neither will we. He says, to what were its foundations fastened? He's saying, Job, do you know anything about gravity? 
You know, gravity is the force that fastens us to the planet. Do you know anything about that, Job? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? The morning stars and the sons of God, they, they're idioms used throughout the Bible for angels. Apparently, angels were spectators at creation. And God here is asking Job, were you one of them? Were you in the angelic choir when I created the universe? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. Now, some scholars believe that prior to Noah's day, planet Earth was shrouded in a colossal canopy of clouds and water vapor. The garment of clouds, as God puts it, the swaddling band. This canopy shielded the earth from the sun's radiation. This is what allowed men to live old ages before the flood. The canopy helped climate control, and it created a greenhouse effect. Warm, stable temperatures were the result. There, was no, there were no moving air masses and air fronts. There were, as a result, very few storms. This basically made the world a tropical paradise. The global flood was actually caused by the collapse of this swaddling band, this canopy of clouds. We're told God created the swaddling band, and He gave, at the same time, He gave the ocean its boundaries. He says, when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said, this far you may come, but no farther, and here your proud waves must stop. Who orders that? Who sets boundaries on the ocean? Who says it, it comes only this far and that's it? God does. God limits the boundaries of the seas. A thousand years ago, there was a Viking warrior named King Canute who ruled England. Canute was such a wise ruler that his subjects tried to worship him. He refused their veneration. And to prove his mortality, he took his throne one day to the seashore. He set it in the surf, sat down on his throne, and he awaited the high tide. As the waters rose higher and higher and higher, King Canute held his scepter above the waves and ordered the waves to stop. John Phillips recounts the story. He writes, It was as if the waters were saying, We know you not, O little man. Our limits are decreed by a greater king than you. No earthly king sets the boundaries and limits of the ocean. Only God does that. Here God tells Job that he is the one who established limits for the seas. Verse 12. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked will be shaken out of it? God is asking Job if he controls the dawning of the new day. Does he arrange for the sun to rise? It takes on form like clay under a seal and stands out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and the upraised arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea? God indicates the existence here of oceanic aquifers. You know, in 1977, three geologists made a discovery near the Galapagos Islands just off the west coast of Peru. They found deep sea hot springs. People didn't know that these things exist until their discovery. Underwater geysers spewed out jets of superheated fluid. 
These geothermal vents acted like chimneys, sending magma 40 feet above the ocean floor. You know, since 1977, there have been similar discoveries elsewhere in the ocean. But God knew all along, and even mentioned to Job, the springs of the sea. He says, or have you walked in the search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? You remember Matthew 16, Jesus spoke about the gates of hell. Here he talks about the gates of death. Verse 18, or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. You know, we mentioned back in Job chapter 26, the possibility of, you can go back and get the tape, uh, not tape, CD. Uh, but we mentioned the possibility of portals, of portals existing around the globe, a warps, wrinkles in time, so to speak, that link the physical world to the spiritual world, the gates of Hades, here the door of death. These gates or warps are associated with the seas and the oceans in the Bible. He says, where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may take it to its territory, that you may know the path to its home? Do you know it? Because you were born then, or because the number of your days is great. Job, are you old enough to know the mysteries of light? Where, where is it its dwelling is? You know, the path that it takes? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Even with our modern knowledge, we still can't define Light, is it an energy or is it a particle? We really don't know. Sometimes it has the characteristics of a wave or energy. Sometimes it, it has characteristics of particles. I mean, it, it has mass. It consists of subparticles. Is it a wave? Energy? Is it particles? Is it, it has mass? You know, we just don't know. Light is still a mystery to us as it was to Job. In verse 22, God asks, have you entered the treasury of snow, or have you seen the treasury of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? Here's another mystery. Where are the treasuries of snow and hail? Does God keep them stockpiled? God tells Job that he keeps the hail reserved for the day of battle and war. You know, when you study the battles of ancient Israel, many of them were won by divine intervention. God would send a hailstorm at just the right moment, at just the right time. In the last days, we read how that the Antichrist will set himself up as God and the world will worship him. And in Revelation chapter 16, God will respond just as he has always punished blasphemy. He will punish the world. He'll punish the blasphemy by stoning. And what will he do? The Bible says that he'll pelt the planet with 100-pound hailstones. God will stone this planet for worshiping the Antichrist. That hail apparently is stored up today in his treasury. It's being stored up until the time of trouble, until the day of battle. Verse 24, By what way is light diffused, or the east wind scattered over the earth? Who has divided a channel for the overflowing water, or a path for the thunderbolt? In 1825, a United States naval officer, a man named Matthew Maury, was reading verse 25 in the book of Job, Job chapter 38. 
And he was surprised to see the mention of channels in the sea. In fact, he started studying water temperatures and currents. And his inquiry led to a whole new discipline of study known as oceanography. Maury was later called the pathfinder of the sea. Today he's known as the father of modern oceanography. But it's interesting, his inspiration came from the ancient text of Job. Well, God continues, Who will cause it to rain on a land where there is no one, a wilderness in which there is no man, to satisfy the desolate waste and cause to spring forth the growth of tender grass? Job, do you cause it to rain? Do you bring the rain, Job? Has the rain a father? Is that you? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice and the frost of heaven? Who gives it birth? The waters harden like stone and the surface of the deep is frozen. You know, we can somewhat predict the weather. I say that sort of uh, skeptically. Seems like we can do it every day except when I really need a reliable prediction. We can somewhat predict the weather, but only God can create the weather and cause the weather and, and make it rain. In verse 31, God goes above the clouds and he speaks of outer space. He says, can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Maseroth in its season? Or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? You know, Maseroth is the Hebrew word for the zodiac. The other three constellations that God mentions are the Pleiades and Orion the hunter and the great bear, also known as the Big Dipper. Evidently, Job knew about these constellations, but was he in a position to steer the stars? course not do you know the ordinances of the heavens can you set their dominion over the earth job did you arrange these constellations i know i don't think i don't remember seeing you at that time i don't remember getting your help when i arranged these constellations can you lift up your voice to the clouds that an abundance of water may cover you again job can you bring rain on command can you send out lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the mind? Or who has given understanding to the heart? You know, the odds of a lightning strike in any given place at any given time, they're one in two million. Those are your odds. Job can't predict a hit, let alone send a lightning bolt. Verse 37, who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can pour out the bottles of heaven when the dust hardens in clumps and the clods cling together? 3,500 years ago, who would have known that rain occurs when water vapor condenses around dust particles? Who would have known that? As far back as the days of Job, only God knew the science of cloud formation. Here he asked Job, do you understand these things, Job? Now, from verse 39 into chapter 39, God gives Job a lesson in zoology. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lurk in their lyres to lie in wait? God gets up and he 
feeds the lions every morning. He feeds all the animals all across the earth every morning. Job, do you want that job? Do you want to be God? Do you want to be responsible for feeding the lions, Job? Who provides food for the raven when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? Again, uh, God, Job acted like he wanted to be God. You know, he certainly wanted to call the shots. But he says, do you really want that responsibility to feed the ravens? Do you know the time when the wild mountain goats bear young? Or can you mark when the deer gives birth? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Or do you know the time when they bear young? Job, do you know the gestation periods for animal reproduction? Ladies, I know a lot nine months seems like a really long time. But ladies, please be glad you're not an elephant. Because did you know that an elephant is pregnant for two years? That's right. If you want an animal to envy, envy the possums. If you, were wish, if you wish you were something else, ladies, just wish you that you were a possum. Possums are pregnant for two months. Elephants for two years, possums for two months. But who makes these decisions? Obviously, God makes these decisions. And yet, whether the elephant's pregnant for two years or the possum's pregnant for two months, notice both produce healthy offspring. They bow down. They bring forth their young. They deliver their offspring. Their young ones are healthy. They grow strong with grain. They depart and do not return to them. So who decides this? You know, that, that a possum only has to be pregnant for two months while an elephant has to be pregnant for two years and, and, and yet they both come out healthy and all. Who, who arranges this? Whose wisdom is, is dictating all of this? It's not Job's. It's not yours. It's obviously God's. Who set the wild donkey free? Who loosed the bonds of the onager, which was a species of wild donkey? Whose home I have made the wilderness and the barren land his dwelling. He scorns the tumult of the sea. He does not heed the shouts of the driver. He's a stubborn donkey. The range of the mountains is his pasture and he searches after every green thing. It's interesting today these wild donkeys in Israel, uh, they're extinct in Israel. They're no longer uh, roaming the land. He says, will the wild ox be willing to serve you? Will he bed by your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in the furrow with ropes? Or will he plow the valleys be behind you? Will you trust him be because his strength is great? Or will you leave your labor to him? Will you trust him to bring home your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? Now, if you're reading out of the old King James, it renders wild ox as unicorn. That's not a good translation. This was actually the aurochs, which was a, uh, it was a wild ox. It was an animal actually bigger than a hippopotamus. It was a huge animal. The wild ox was wild and strong and ferocious. I mean, plowing a field with an aurochs would be like plowing with a rhinoceros or with an elephant. Today, too, the aurochs is extinct. The last one was seen in Israel in 1627. He's saying, though, you know, you, you wouldn't uh, trust in an aurochs to plow your fields. It'd be like plowing with a grizzly bear or something. 
Verse 13, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly. But are her wings and pinions like the kindly storks? For she leaves her eggs on the ground and warms them in the dust. She forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may break them. She treats her young harshly as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain without concern. Now the ostrich is an interesting animal and and God points this out. It's the largest bird on earth. Ostriches weigh up to 400 pounds. But ostriches are the ultimate bird brain. The mother ostrich lays her eggs in the ground only to forget their location. Later she comes back looking for them and often she crushes them with her own feet. And why is the ostrich so stupid? Verse 17. Because God deprived her of wisdom. And did not endow her with understanding. That's what my teachers in high school used to say about me. Now, why in the world would God make a bird stupid? Why, Why would he do that? And the answer, we don't know. You know, this is the answer to a lot of questions we have about God. We don't know. It's as if God is saying to Job, get used to that, Job. Get used to not knowing why. It's a common dilemma for a true believer. Think about it. If you knew everything there was to know about God, with your little pea brain, he wouldn't be much of a God, would he? The fact that there's much about God we don't know, the fact that there's things that we can't understand, this, this, is, this proves to me that he's a God big enough to command my worship and my adoration. You know, get used to it. There are some things about God that we don't know that we'll never know. That, that's where we have to have faith. One commentator puts it this way. It's as if God is saying to Job, get used to my absurdity and live by faith rather than by sight. Well, for whatever reason, God made the ostrich stupid. But to compensate, he made her fast. That's good. Verse 18. When she lifts herself on high, she scorns the horse and its rider. In other words, an ostrich can outrun a horse doing 40 miles per hour. And here's a big lesson. If you're stupid, you need to be fast. Be smarter, be quick, you know. Any horse lovers here tonight? Anybody love horses? Well, he's got a whole section next on horses. Verse 19. Have you given the horse strength? (laughs) You know, the horse, you watch these thoroughbreds as they power around the racetrack, you know. Wow, what a picture of strength and grace. Who gave that to the horse? Who made that horse that way, Job? Did Did you make that horse like that? Did you give the horse its strength? course not. Have you clothed his neck with thunder? Can you frighten him like a locust? His majestic snorting strikes terror. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He gallops into the clash of arms. He mocks at fear and is not frightened, nor does he turn back from the sword. He's talking about a war horse. The quiver rattles against him. 
the glittering spear and javelin. He devours the distance with fierceness and rage, nor does he come to a halt because the trumpet has sounded. A horse bravely gallops into the fury of the battle. At the blast of the trumpet, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of captains and shouting. In other words, he charges right into the line of fire. Wow, what a picture of of bravery and courage and strength. A war horse. Verse 26 continues God's questions for Job. Does the hawk fly by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle mount up at your command and make its nest on high? On the rocks it dwells and resides. On the crag of the rock and the stronghold. From there it spies out the prey. Its eyes observe from afar. Its young ones suck up blood. And where the slain are, there it is. Again, God's observations about nature are meant to humble Job. You know, when Job asked the questions, here's what happened. In his mind, in his estimation, he was growing larger and larger, and God was shrinking and getting smaller and smaller. But now, now that God is on the asking end of the questions, Job is the one who's shrinking, and God is the one who's growing in significance. You see, God is putting Job back in his rightful place. You know, he's taking him down a notch or two. Chapter 40. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? You want to keep correcting me, Job? You want to keep telling me how to be God? He who rebukes God, let him answer. You see, Job had assumed that he was smarter than God. It's time now for Job to put down his pencil and turn in his test. Verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. I'm just going to shut up. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Now, at first glance, you might think that Job has gotten the message, but not so. Here's what's going on. Job has simply gone from pounding to pouting. You know, up until now, he's been pounding his fist. He's been demanding to know why. But now he goes from pounding to pouting. From beating his fist to now sticking out his lip. It's as if he's saying, okay, God, you win. You've proved your point. Okay, you're bigger than I am, so I'm just going to shut up and serve you. Job is agreeing to serve the Lord, but you can bet he's going to serve him with a grudge. You know anybody like that? Anybody who serves God with a grudge? Well, I got might as well. I've got no other choice. Hey, Job has accepted God's sovereignty. Yes, he's a big God. Yes, he he, he calls the shots. Job has accepted that, but he doesn't like it. He still doesn't appreciate it. He's accepted God's sovereignty, but he sure doesn't like it. He's still got an attitude and is brewing under the surface, and God is not through correcting Job. Guys, understand this. 
God doesn't want us to pound or pout. There's a third option. God wants us to praise Him for who He is. Sadly, at the moment, Job is just pouting. He's giving in only because he has no other choice, and God is not through correcting Job's attitude. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. God didn't like the first set of answers he got from Job, and so he's got a few more questions. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? And this is exactly what Job had done. This was Job's most grievous mistake. Remember, it wasn't a particular sin that Job had committed that caused his calamity. But Job did sin in response to his calamity. As he tried to prove his innocence, as he tried to vindicate himself, he lost his respect for God. And with these questions, God tries to restore some humility to Job tries to bring him back to a place of repentance. He says, have you an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like His? Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and array yourself with glory and beauty. Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. And do the stuff that God does, Job. Then we'll talk. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Did you hear about the world's most conceited man? He dialed dollar prayer to see if he had any messages. Here, God is offering to Job the opportunity to be God for the day. God asked Job, Job, can you do the stuff that you need to do to be God? I mean, adorn yourself with glory, judge sin, break the proud. You want to do that, Job? Job, is that a job for you? Job had acted like a man who wanted to be God, but is he so sure? You know, what God does next is intriguing. Up to this point, he's noted 12 animals. But now God mentions two more. But these are not ordinary beasts. The behemoth and the leviathan were the most feared beasts of Job's day. Behemoth was the king of the land. Leviathan was the king of the sea. Man was defenseless against them both. You know, some people think that the behemoth was a wild ox or a hippo or a rhino or perhaps even a woolly mammoth, while Leviathan was a crocodile or a sea serpent. Problem is, none of these theories are an exact match. I'll let you decide once we talk about them. Verse 15. Look now at the behemoth which I made along with you. In other words, man and beast were both created on day six of creation. He says he eats grass like an ox. See now, though, his strength is in his hips, and his power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. 
His bones are like beams of bronze. His ribs like bars of iron. Now, now get this picture. A tail like a cedar tree. Bones like beams. Ribs like iron bars. I don't think this is a hippopotamus. It's my belief that the behemoth was a dinosaur. That he was a brontosaurus or a aptosaurus, whichever one you want to call him. Here's my belief. I believe that dinosaurs were created on the sixth day along with man, as Job says here. Dinosaurs were named by Adam. Noah took the dinosaurs on the ark. I guess you could call it a Jurassic ark. Of course, you know, you say, well, how did they get the brontosaurus on the, on the ark? Well, they brought him on as a baby or maybe even as an incubating egg. After the flood, the earth had changed. And now it lacked the vegetation to support the enormous diets of these huge herbivores. And so, shortly in short order, they became extinct. In addition, the vapor canopy, remember, that had surrounded and shrouded the earth had now collapsed. And so the earth was now subject to solar radiation and a changing ecosystem that it had not experienced before. All of this combined did in the dinosaurs shortly after the flood. And yet, remember, the book of Job is the oldest book of the Bible, a very, very old book. And so it's possible that there may have been a few lingering dinosaurs around in the days of Job. At least Job knew of the dinosaurs. I think that uh, he is referring to dinosaurs here as he speaks of behemoth and Leviathan. To the chagrin of evolutionists, Evidence does exist. There are cave drawings. There's historical records of men who lived contemporaneously with the dinosaurs. More about Behemoth. He is the first of the ways of God. Only he who made him can bear his, bear, bring near his sword. In other words, this, this beast only God can handle. Only God can deal with this Behemoth. Surely the mountains yield food for him. And all the beasts of the field play there. He lies under the lotus trees in a covert of reeds and marsh. The lotus trees cover him with their shade. The willows by the brook surround him. Indeed, the river may rage, yet he is not disturbed. Think of a dinosaur standing in a raging river, you know, unmoved by the current and the, and the commotion around his feet. He is confident, though the Jordan gushes into his mouth. Though he takes it in his eyes, or one pierces his nose with a snare. Not even raging rivers intimidate this behemoth. The current doesn't move him. He's not disturbed. Chapter 41. Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook? Or snare his tongue with a line which you lure? In other words, would you fish for Leviathan? With rod and reel? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Remember that scene from the movie Jaws? I think it's the first Jaws. Where the, you got the couple of guys that are out there on the dock. They're fishing. And suddenly they hook the great white shark. And he not only takes the bait, he takes the dock. 
and the men with him, you know, and takes them out to sea. This is how Leviathan would react if hooked by a rod and reel. He says, will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you, Job? I mean, is he going to show you any deference? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a little bird? Or will you leash him for your maidens? You're going to put the Leviathan on a leash and walk him through the neighborhood with your little pooper scooper behind you? Will your companions make a banquet of him? I mean, will they apportion him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. Never do it again. One tangle with Leviathan and it'll be your last, Job. This is a creature no one wants to battle. Do and you lose. And yet God created him and God controls him. God is greater than Job. Verse 9. Indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. Job, if you fear the Leviathan, why don't you fear me? What's happened to your fear of God? I will not conceal his limbs, his mighty power, or his graceful proportions. Who can remove his outer coat? Who can approach him with a double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face with his terrible teeth all around? His rows of scales are his pride, shut up tightly as with a seal. One is so near another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together and cannot be parted. I mean, this beast, its legs are strong. Its teeth are terrible. Its scales are like armor. And notice, his sneezings flash forth light. And his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lights. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke goes out of his nostrils as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame goes out of his mouth. Now this is not just a case of bad breath. And with all due respect, this is no crocodile or no alligator. The description of Leviathan is that of a fire-breathing dragon. That's what he's just described. You know, it's interesting that dinosaurs, like the Coriosaurus and the Lambiosaurus, they had little hollow cavities in the top of their heads with tubes that ran down to their nostrils. Author Henry Morris writes of these dinosaurs, it is conceivable that this could have served as a sort of mixing chamber for combustible gases that would ignite when exhaled into the outside oxygen. Literally, fire-breathing dragons. You know, there are a species of beetles today that release combustible materials that, that are fire-breathing beetles. Traditions and legends from all over the world speak of fire-breathing creatures. To me, it's reasonable to believe that they existed at one time. In fact, I hope you know, dinosaurs still exist. Dinosaurs have been found in modern times. 
1977, some fishermen off the coast of New Zealand landed a recently decomposed plesiosaur. Again, a dinosaur. Who knows what creatures still live in the depths of the sea? What sea monsters, what sea creatures like Leviathan? Can you say Loch Ness Monster? The description of Leviathan continues in verse 22. Strength dwells in his neck and sorrow dances before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together. They are firm on him and cannot be moved. His heart is as hard as stone, even as hard as the lower millstone. This is a callous creature, not a tender-hearted creature to say the least. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. Because of his crashings, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it cannot avail, nor does spear, dart, or javelin. He regards iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. He's strong. His hide is tough. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones become like stubble to him. In other words, men throw rocks at him to shoo him away, but they just bounce off. Darts and are regarded as straw. He laughs at the threat of javelins. Verse 30. His undersides are like sharp potsherds. He spreads pointed marks in the mire. He's got these big scales on him. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. He leaves a shining wake behind him. One would think the deep had white hair. Leaves the white caps behind him. On earth there is nothing like him which is made without fear. He beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of pride. And boy, that final description really has a sinister tone, doesn't it? King over all the children of pride. Sounds like a title for Satan. Remember we mentioned in Job 26, verses 12 and 13, and then again in Psalm 89, verses 9 and 10, that the creation is depicted in these passages as a battle. As a battle between God and the sea serpent. I encourage you to go back and read Job 26 and Psalm 89. Creation was not just a simple uh, situation of God coming and speaking things into existence. There was a battle in the midst of creation. You remember when the creation drama opens, when Act 1 opens, there's darkness on the face of the deep. There's a storm at sea. What created this storm? What caused this storm? What, why why are the, is the spirit hovering above the waters? What's going on there? Notice here, Leviathan, he makes the sea like a pot of ointment. He leaves a shining wake behind him. He stirs up the sea. I believe that at the creation, Satan was in the waters trying to thwart God's creation. A battle ensued. Creation was a battle between God and the sea serpent. You know, it's interesting that in Genesis, when Satan first appears, he appears in the form of a snake with legs. He's a snake, and he's got legs because we know when he's cursed, what's the curse? He's to crawl on his belly. So apparently prior to that, he had legs. What is a snake with legs? It's a dragon. It's a dragon. It, it's, a, it's, the, it's a Leviathan. It's what we're reading about here. It could be that Leviathan is actually a personification of Satan. Chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, 
I know that you can do everything. Now, here's Job's response to all of this. You know, now, it's, now Job's finally gotten it. And I think it's safe to say that Job finally gets the message. He finally falls back in line. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Obviously, this time, Job gets the point. Job is no longer grumbling under his breath. He's no longer making the most out of a raw deal. This isn't Job giving in because he has no other choice. This is not reluctance here. This is repentance. This is not begrudging agreement. This is true repentance. Job's reverence and his humility have been restored. You know, at the end of his ordeal, Job realizes that he has no right to question the Almighty, that God is sovereign, that he owes no man anything, that God does as he pleases without getting our permission or offering us an explanation. Have you concluded that? God's ways are wonderful, whether we understand them or not. Whether we feel victimized or not, God's ways are wonderful. Recall, Job never learned why. Remember, to the very end of this book, Job never read the first two chapters of the book of Job. But Job learned something much more valuable than why. Job learned who. And here's the lesson from Job. When you know who, you don't really need to know why. Author Don Baker, he articulates it this way. If there is anything a sufferer needs, it is not an explanation, but a fresh new look at God. You know, I know folks whose chief ambition to getting to heaven is to get answers to their questions. I just can't wait. I got so many questions for God. And you know what? I'm sure you're going to get answers to your questions. But I'm just as sure that when you get to heaven, your answers won't be nearly as important as you thought they were. For when you see the beauties and the glories of our Lord Jesus, all of the perplexities, all of the questions are going to be overshadowed. In the end, the who swallows up all of the whys. Following the difficult days of World War II, King George of England, he made a statement to his countrymen about the uncertainties of the coming new year. I said to the man at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may walk safely into the unknown. He said to me, Go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God, and it shall be better to you than the light and safer to you than the known. Now imagine that. The hand of God. Better than the light and safer than the known. The hand of God. Rather than complain, rather than question, rather than criticize, don't you think a better approach is for us to grip his hand just a little tighter? 
Once there was an old man who was walking with his grandson. He asked the boy, he said, do you know where you are? Nope, Grandpa, I don't. Well, do you know how far you are from home? No, sir. Well, son, it sounds like to me you're lost. That's when the little boy grinned. He said, nope, Grandpa, I can't be lost. Grandpa said, well, why are you so sure? And that's when the little guy said, I can't be lost because I'm with you. And that's what God wants you and I to learn. That even when we don't understand, even when the lights have been turned out, even when we seem lost, we're never lost when we're with God. He can be trusted. Always remember, what's over my head, it's still under God's feet. What's over my head is still under God's feet. Well, verse 7 tells us, And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, remember him? My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, old Bildad and Zophar hiding over there. For you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. What a vindication for Job. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. Now how ironic. The man that they accused for 28 chapters is the one who will pray and intercede for them. Verse 8. For I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Notice in the end, Job, in the end, God rejects their kindergarten theology. In this life, good is not always rewarded and evil is not always punished. God has reasons hidden from view and we have to learn to trust in Him. So Eliphaz the Timonite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord commanded them, for the Lord had accepted Job. And notice at this point, there is nothing different about Job's situation. He's still grieving over his losses. He's still covered with boils. Yet God accepts Job because of his faith. Apparently, you can't judge a man's spiritual condition by his physical or financial status. Verse 10. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. But when did this happen? When Job let go of his bitterness and prayed for his hurtful friends. Notice this. Forgiveness was the key that turned the lock and unleashed God's blessing in Job's life. Don't miss that. The Lord restored Job's losses when? When he prayed for his friends. Bitterness is a blocker. And if you are bitter tonight, if you're holding a grudge, understand the person you're hurting the most is yourself. Remember, bitterness is an acid that does far more damage on where it's stored than on where it's poured. Repent of that bitterness and pray for your friends or enemies. 
Then all his brothers, all his sisters, and all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house. He's restored. They bring him back home. And they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. Happy days are here again. The tide is starting to turn. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. And if you'll check chapter 1, you'll notice that this is double where Job started. Just as he had said that the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. He also gave him seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first Jemima, which means dove. The name of the second, Keziah, which means perfume. And the name of the third, Karen Hapuk, which means I paint. Dove was her soap. Perfume, that's her perfume. I paint, that's all her little mascara and all that kind of stuff. All three names emphasize beauty and femininity. These were wonderful girls, beautiful girls, feminine, feminine girls, girly girls. Job was blessed with these girly girls for daughters. He was, a, he was a happy man. In all the land were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. Verse 16 closes. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of days. Tradition says that Job died at 210 years old. If he was 70 at the time of his calamity, that means that God doubled his lifespan thereafter. Gave him another 140 years. Again, he blessed him with twice as much. God blessed Job abundantly. When he died, his, his home, his silos, his pantries were full of blessing. But his greatest blessing by far was his knowledge of God and his fear of God. Job got a new attitude during his days on the ash heap was during his time of trouble, during his calamity, that he gained a deeper knowledge of God. And in the end, it was worth it. Let me close with some encouragement. If you're suffering tonight, and you don't know why, if you're suffering tonight without a reason, I've got some encouragement for you. Love God. Don't fight Him. Trust God. Don't question Him. Don't pound or pout. Learn to praise God for who He is, for His greatness, for His glory. And remember, real faith doesn't need to know why when it's certain of who. What's over my head is still under His feet. Father, thank You for Your Word and for this wonderful wonderful book, the book of Job. What outstanding lessons we learn. What foundational truths we discover.
Lord, it's hard for us to even to relate to you, to, to even relate to ourselves without understanding the message of Job. I guess the first rule for us all is, is, is to understand that God is God and we are not. What an important lesson that is for us all. Lord, help us to continue to go back to this book in times of trouble, in times of difficulty, in times of questioning and perplexity. Help us go back to this book and remember the lessons that we've learned. And most of all, Lord, may we praise you in the good times and in the bad times. For you are worthy to be praised. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now.